This is The Guardian. Here in the UK, local planning policies have the tendency to get people a little riled up. But they don't usually spark global conspiracy theories. And yet, last weekend, that's exactly what happened. A previously niche concept for towns and cities became a lightning rod for paranoia and protests. Creepy local authority bureaucrats would like to see your entire existence boiled down to the duration of a quarter of an hour. You in your area will only be allowed within that 15-minute zone that you've been allocated. Will the leader please set aside some time in this house for a debate on the international socialist concept of so-called 15-minute cities? Stand up for your rights and stop being puppets of the government! So what is the 15-minute city? And why has it become so controversial? We'll tell you in the time it takes to pop to the shops. From The Guardian, I'm Madeleine Finlay, and this is Science Weekly. Ollie Wainwright, you're The Guardian's architecture and design critic, and recently you've been writing about the 15-minute city and the backlash against them. So first things first, what is a 15-minute city? It's actually a very basic and uncontroversial idea. It essentially suggests that it would be nice to have all of your daily needs whether that's where you work or where you go and buy food or where you take your kids to school or, you know, the local GP within a kind of 15 minute walk or bike ride from your house. So otherwise known as walkable neighborhoods or mixed use development, it's a kind of idea that's been around forever, but only recently repackaged and rebranded as a 15 minute city in a kind of bite sized way to get local authorities and developers interested and has also hit headlines as a result. So this idea is actually how a lot of people lived for a long time. But mm -hmm. what about the term? Where did that come from? Where did the idea kind of take place and begin to gain traction? Yeah, well, this phrase, the 15-minute city, has been attributed to a professor at the Sorbonne in Paris called Carlos Moreno, who came up with it, I think, in about 2016. I would like to offer a concept of cities that goes in the opposite direction to modern urbanism, an attempt at converging life into a human-sized space rather than fracturing it into inhuman bigness and then forcing us to adapt. I call it the 15-minute city. And then the, the reason it gained traction is that the mayor of Paris and Hidalgo kind of latched onto it as a very good part of her re-election manifesto in 2020. And so as part of her manifesto, she was describing things like introducing extra bike lanes, having more neighborhood parks, reconceiving schools as the kind of capital of neighborhoods so their playgrounds would be opened up at evenings and weekends for community activities, 
even going as far as kind of participatory local budgeting. So neighborhoods could kind of vote on crowdfunding improvements to their specific neighborhoods. So we really kind of drive for localism. And a couple of years ago, Carlos Mourinho got awarded this great prize for urbanism, the Obel Awards. I mean, that's, I think, when it really took off and became known as the 15-minute city, you know, despite actually having been in use for, for many years before that. And I know a lot of people have this dream of being able to walk to work, but how does this idea that you've described compare to the way that we actually live, you know, the way that most cities are really designed? Well, it's interesting. I, the reason it's taken off and become so hotly debated is that the COVID pandemic was a kind of accidental test for how a 15-minute city might work in reality. If you live in most parts of London, or in fact, most UK towns and cities, you probably already live in a 15-minute city. I mean, you can cycle to most of your daily amenities within 15 or 20 minutes. So it's not new to most people. But I think the pandemic lockdown, you know, when it did literally confine a lot of people to that 15-minute radius, that's what really gave it a test. So what kind of benefits do we get from that sort of environment? There's the idea that people become more active because they're walking and cycling more. So that's a kind of improvement to both physical and mental health. The fact that traffic is reduced and therefore air quality improved because you're not having to get in the car to drive to the shops and drive to school. It also boosts the local economy because, you know, local shops and businesses thrive as a result of having their market close by. It could potentially see the end of the out-of-town shopping center and the kind of big box retail store, but the local high streets, in theory, would be the beneficiary of the 15-minute city. And then the final one, people talk about the kind of benefit to, I suppose, neighborly bonds, you know, and it sounds romantic in a sense, but... I think the pandemic, a lot of people started actually talking to their neighbours for the first time, you know, walking around the local area and meeting people. And there has just been a general strengthening of those community ties. And I, I think people see the 15-minute city as a route to kind of helping that as well. So let's say we all want these benefits and we all decided that our cities should switch to 15-minute cities. I mean, how do you even begin to achieve that? How do you start to create a 15-minute city? I suppose that's maybe the, the wrong way of looking at it, that it's not something that's kind of immediately going to be imposed or that, that our cities need to be fundamentally replanned. You know, because as we've discussed, it does kind of exist already in a lot of ways. But I, I suppose ways that places are trying to nudge towards it, things like improving bike lanes and having quiet ways help, you know, allowing people to actually get around the area without driving. At a fundamental level, kind of distribution of services, you know, rather than having kind of one central library. Birmingham is a really interesting example. They, they closed a lot of their branch libraries and put millions of pounds into building this kind of gargantuan cathedral-like library in the center of the city. And then realized they didn't actually have the budget to keep it open long enough and the footfall to the central library fell. And people realized that actually the neighborhood libraries would have been much more popular. And so it's that kind of decentralization of, services. It's just ensuring that that level of provision is, I suppose, equitably distributed around the city and that the 15-minute neighborhood isn't something that's only confined to kind of wealthy, well-to-do, gentrified areas with their organic butcher and fishmonger, you know, which often is a lifestyle confined to the kind of wealthier parts of the city.
And fairness is an important question. Someone who's looked at this in more detail is Dr Richard Dunning, Senior Lecturer in Housing and Planning at the University of Liverpool. He studied whether the concept of the 15-minute city works for all residents. It's received a lot of attention from major players, Melbourne, Paris, London, even Oxford. We wanted to look at a kind of more normal city to understand whether the 15-minute city concept could apply. And we wanted to think about particularly around equity. So to understand how the distribution of services across the city region impacted on the equity of people living in different parts of the city. And what kinds of services are we thinking about? Because, of course, everyone needs and wants different things from their local neighbourhood. Carlos Marino is quite clear about this as the kind of architect behind the 15-minute city in terms of living, working, commerce, healthcare, education and entertainment. So he has six categories. The problem, though, is how we identify those at a local scale and how we relate those to individuals. And that is a complex uh, business. You know, my healthcare needs are different to my next door neighbours. And so thinking about all of these and looking at the kind of equitable distribution of services within the neighbourhoods around Liverpool, what exactly did you find? The equity analysis did show very stark variations across Liverpool city region, with some uh, neighbourhoods already firmly within kind of 15-minute city category, down to locations around Liverpool that had less than two or three of those services available to them. We also saw variation across different socioeconomic groups as well which was slightly disheartening to suggest that, for example, black and minority ethnic groups were more likely to live outside high accessibility neighbourhoods. But conversely as well, people with high car ownership and some of the highest income categories also didn't live in 15-minute neighbourhoods. But one could question whether that's a matter of equity or a matter of choice. Richard, within this, one of the things that you found was that disadvantaged areas are further away from becoming 15-minute spaces generally and would need more substantial intervention to get there. So how do you think this could be done in a way that's fair and gets residents what they actually want? This is where the duality between the hyperlocal decision-making and engagement with the public also needs to meet with city regional level planning. The city region needs to be planned so that support is provided equitably across different neighbourhoods to enhance them all simultaneously. That might sound like a grand ambition, and in a sense it is, but it's a necessity. We need to think about the distribution of services equitably and fairly so that we're not creating high quality neighbourhoods in one location and exacerbating poor quality neighbourhoods in another. Ollie, despite all the health, well-being, environmental benefits from 15-minute cities and the fact that it just happens to be a reality for a lot of people already, this idea has proved weirdly controversial. So I want to dive into it because it feels like the anti-15-minute city movement is a node within the web of conspiracy theories. Let's get into that web. Where does this come from? 
it seems to be a number of different things. There was one particular article based on Oxford Council's new local plan, which just kind of mentions in passing the idea of introducing 15-minute neighborhoods. This news website called Vision News actually took a separate policy that Oxford have introduced about low-traffic neighborhoods, limiting the number of days that people can basically drive across the city. They've kind of conflated the low-traffic neighborhood policy with this much more benign idea of 15-minute city. And the, the headline was, Oxfordshire County Council passed climate lockdown trial. And this article said that the city plans to lock residents into one of six zones. Uh, you'll only be allowed to leave through electronic gates, you know, if the council decides that you're worthy of freedom. So that article then has been shared tens of thousands of times and turned into little videos on Facebook and TikTok. You know, people talking about a Hunger Games future where you won't be allowed out of your particular zone and you'll have to have permits to leave. It's designed to control, just as masks were designed to control, just in the COVID thing was, a t was like an hors d'oeuvre. That's all it was. And uh, you just have to join the dots. You know, you have Bill Gates, largest landowner in America. They're now encouraging people to eat bugs. There was an item on GB News recently that talked about this great dystopian plan to turn written into a surveillance culture that would make Pyongyang envious. And I think it's particularly funny that they're all talking about this thing as a very un-British idea, partly because it has been promoted by the mayor of Paris and this um, Colombian professor at the Sorbonne. When in fact, if you think about it, it's the ultimate British, you know, local village idea, the kind of vicar cycling to the bakery and the nice village green with children playing out. You know, it's the kind of Tories dream of what ye olde England should be like. So the fact that the criticism and the opposition is coming from the right of the political spectrum is um, fascinating and, yeah, very surreal. So it's fair to say that a lot of this is ridiculous, but are any of the concerns and criticisms against the 15-minute city idea legitimate? That is a really important point to raise. And I think that what's really damaging about this kind of conspiracy theory distraction of you know being locked in your neighborhood is that actually it creates a smokescreen and stops people from actually really interrogating some of the real issues behind the 15 minute city there is actually the issue of you know could it lead to further social segregation and it also raises the question of where would the people providing the services live people working in those industries would have to live 15 minutes away and that might not always be possible so there are some serious things to question about it but the idea of being trapped in your neighbourhood and literally not allowed to leave it just simply isn't true. Ollie, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thanks again to both Ollie Wainwright and to Dr Richard Dunning. You can find a link to Ollie's article on the 15-minute city protests on the podcast webpage at theguardian.com. And that's it for today. The producer was Ned Carter-Miles. The sound design was by Tony Onachuku. And the executive producer was Ellie Bury. We'll be back on Tuesday. See you then. This is The Guardian.